You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning, everybody. We're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, So Dean George, uh, we can take advantage of his time with us uh, here. Uh, He goes without really uh, any introduction. He's the uh, founding dean and still dean of uh, Beeson Divinity School and uh, a longtime friend of the Advent. And uh, Dean George, delighted to have you uh, here with us. Uh, Let's have a word of prayer. The Lord be with you. And with thy spirit. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your church. Uh, the, The gates of hell will never prevail against it. And, Lord, the fellowship that we enjoy uh, here at the Advent uh, of, of those uh, who um, hold uh, strongly uh, to uh, your cross and seek to dwell within its shadow. Uh, Lord, we thank you for our brother Timothy, for bringing him to us. We pray that you would speak uh, to us through him by the power of your Holy Spirit, that indeed this day uh, we might see Jesus. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Dean Andrew. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm honored to be here in the dean's class. I feel right at home, though uh, I know Andrew is a different kind of dean. He's a real dean, and I'm just a sort of academic dean. But anyway, uh, I've heard a lot about this class. Of course, I've heard a lot about the Cathedral Church of the Advent. But this class, I think, has got a reputation of its own. And you're serious learners. You want to dig deep into the things of God and So I'm just really honored to have this privilege of speaking to the dean's class here at the cathedral today. Now, what am I going to do? It's not a sermon, although my students sometimes say your lectures and your sermons sound alike. So you might call it a lerman or something like that. I don't know. But I really want to kind of step back and look at the Reformation as a whole and ask the question, what did the reformers think they were doing? Now, there are lots of ways to study the Reformation. They're all good. Uh, We can study the Reformation economically, politically, socially, culturally, on all these different good ways of studying uh, the Reformation. Uh, And it's important in this 500th anniversary of the Reformation that we get as much insight as we can. One of the things that's come out recently is what's called studying the Reformation from below. That means giving attention to groups that have, by and large, been marginalized in Reformation historiography until now, women, peasants, Jews, dissenters. These kind of groups, that have, the limelight has not been on them. It's been on the great figures of the Reformation. So we're giving more attention to them. I think that's a good thing because the Reformation was not just for the learned clergy and the upper class. It was for all of the people, and it ought to be for all the people today. So I'm all in favor of that. However, I think there's a little danger to it. And the danger is that we can focus so much on kind of the, let's say, secular causes of the Reformation that we neglect, actually, to ask the question, what did the Reformers think they were doing? How did they understand the movement of which they were a part? Now, another trend recently is to no longer speak about the Reformation, but instead to speak about reformations, plural. Because, of course, there was a Lutheran Reformation, a Zwinglian, a Calvinist, an Anglican, a radical, even a Catholic Reformation. So there are many different streams of reform in the 16th century. However, I want to 
just step back from that a little bit and take an exception because there is a good reason for continuing to speak of the Reformation. It's best put by the British historian Ewan Cameron who says, the Reformation, the movement that divided European Christianity into Catholic and Protestant traditions is unique. No other movement of religious protest or reform since antiquity has been so widespread or lasting in its effects, so deep and searching in its criticism of received wisdom, so destructive in what it abolished, so fertile in what it created. Well, I think there's a lot of wisdom there. Patrick Collinson, another great historian of the English Reformation, said, without the Reformation, talking about other putative Reformations would make no sense. Again, I think he has a good point. So I'm taking as my cue a statement made by the great British historian F.M. Powick back around almost 100 years ago now, where he said, the value of an idea is not primarily what it means to us, but what it means to the people who had it. And I think that's a great starting point. We don't want to impose our view on the Reformation, at least not initially. We want to listen well to what the Reformers thought they were about. Now, the way to get into this subject is to begin with a little act of demolition. You know, Jeremiah chapter 1 talks about tearing up, plucking up, as well as building. And so there's a demolition job that has to be done before we can think constructively. And the demolition job, I want to challenge today three myths about the Reformation. Now, these are very commonly held beliefs about the... It's how we interpret, how we understand the Reformation. Some of you may, may believe some of these myths. They may be your views. If so, I want to challenge them a little bit. And uh, we'll have Q&A at the end. You can come back and challenge me. That's the way it works. So, number one myth, the Reformation divided the church. Have you ever heard that? The Reformation divided the church. Well, the idea that the Reformation divided the church goes right back to the 16th century itself. It was the centerpiece of a classic exchange between Cardinal Jacopo Sattoletto and John Calvin in 1539. Calvin and his fellow reformers, Sattoletto charged, were attempting to tear into pieces the seamless robe of Christ. He said, not even the Soldiers at the foot of the cross did that. They gambled for it, but they didn't rip it apart. That's what you're doing, he said to Calvin. Calvin's reply was an appeal to antiquity. All we have attempted to do has been to renew that ancient form of the church. Now, by church, Calvin had in mind the church revealed preeminently in the scriptures, but also the church that was evident in the age of Chrysostom and Basil the Great and Cyprian and Ambrose and Augustine, the great ancient teachers of the Christian church. We call them church fathers. Now, that the Reformation ended up, that it entailed the rupture of Western Christendom, is not in question. But who had left whom and why? This would be debated between Catholics and Protestants for centuries to come, and it still is today. So I begin with this statement. Division, schism, the splitting apart was not the result of the Reformation. 
It was its genesis and point of departure. The Reformation did not divide the church. The Reformation inherited a divided church. Well, uh, to say nothing about the many divisions in the first millennium of Christianity, just to start with 1054, the great split between the eastern and the western churches left a gaping hole in the unity of the church, one that still remains today despite enormous efforts at reconciliation between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox churches. And then in the West, the pontificate of Boniface VIII ended with what we call the Babylonian captivity because for 70 years, the papacy was no longer housed in Rome. It was in Avignon, in France, uh, under the control, more or less, uh, of the French king, the French monarch. This was followed in turn by the Western schism. When you have a spectacle of initially two and then eventually three separate popes excommunicating one another, each presiding as the sole vicar of Christ over separate jurisdictions. This crisis, the crisis of the multi-papacy, let us call it, was resolved in 1417 at the Council of Constance by the election of Pope Martin V, but that didn't end all the schism and division in the church. The Hussites in Bohemia led a revolution. The Lollards, the followers of John Wycliffe in England, were driven underground and persecuted, as were the Waldensians in France and Italy and the Alumbrados in Spain. All of this continued to mar the seamless garment of a united church. So here's the point. One way to understand the Reformation is to see it as an effort to overcome the brokenness and the disunity of the late medieval church. The Reformation was a movement for Christian unity based on a recovery of a besieged Catholicity. I'm going to say that sentence again. I made it up and I love those words. The Reformation was a movement of Christian unity based on a recovery of a besieged Catholicity. And there actually were efforts toward Christian unity trying to repair the breach that was beginning to happen during the Reformation itself. For example, uh, two great Protestant theologians, Philip Melanchthon, Luther's associate and successor in the Lutheran Reformation in Wittenberg, and Martin Bucer who was the reformer in the city of Strasbourg. Both of them were deeply committed to this project of trying to see if there's a way forward we can stay in dialogue and in, in some kind of uh, communion with one another. It didn't succeed. We know that. But the effort was there and the intention was there. On the Catholic side, there were people like Cardinal Contarini and Cardinal Serapondo, very much in the same Vain. So that's the first myth I want to at least challenge, that the Reformation divided the church. No, the Reformation inherited a divided church, and there were efforts in the 16th century to see if we can repair that breach. Unsuccessful, but the intention was there. Now, number two. Luther was the first modern man. I know some of you went on a Reformation tour a year or so ago, uh, and uh, I just went on one this summer, led a group of people to the Lutherlands. You know, it's kind of like Disneyland, the Lutherland. Uh, but um, everywhere we went, we were 
met with local guides who had been fed this line. This is how, what they said. How Luther, how we all owed Luther every freedom that we have, the fact that we're, we, we are able now to be really functional, modern people. This all goes back to Martin Luther. Well, it really goes back to, uh, among others, uh, Hegel, who said that the Reformation was the all-illuminating sun that followed the daybreak at the end of the Middle Ages. And so this idea of presenting Luther as the harbinger of the Enlightenment, as the first modern man, finds many expressions in uh, the history of Western thought from the Reformation until now, only one of whom uh, was Thomas Carlyle, famous Scottish savant, who wrote a book called Heroes and Hero Worship. And he said, uh, Luther, when he stood at Worms and said, Here I stand, so help me God, I can do no other. This was the greatest moment in the modern history of man. Had Luther not stood there unflinchingly in that moment, we would have lost everything. English Puritanism, the French Revolution, European civilization, even parliamentary democracy. That's a lot to put on the shoulders of Martin Luther at Worms, but that's what he believed, and many people have agreed with him. You just go through the list of the great intellectual shapers of the 20th century, people like Max Weber and William Dilthey and Adolf von Harnack. These are just a few of the people that buy into this line. It's a part of our culture today. Uh, Harnock, the greatest liberal Protestant theologian of the 20th century, said the modern age began along with Luther's Reformation on October the 31st, 1517. It was inaugurated by the blows of the hammer on the door of the castle church at Wittenberg. Those state, that statement, those words were written in the year 1923, which was the year Adolf Hitler tried to overturn the government of Germany in the failed Beer Hall Putsch in Munich. Now, there were others, uh, I think, more sober in their assessment, people like Ernst Trelch, who said, no, the, the Reformation it really did, did, was not the dawn of modernity. Insofar as there was a dawn of modernity in that age, it wasn't the Reformation, it was the Renaissance. And so Erasmus, not Luther, is the great hero for everybody. And um, Nietzsche, a, a person, I, I tell our students at Beeson that uh, there are two, two theologians, two, two thinkers every student needs to know before you leave this school. One is John Calvin, and the other is Friedrich Nietzsche. And why Nietzsche? Well, Nietzsche was a prophet of the 21st century, far more than he was a prophet of the 20th century. And he did not see the Reformation as the dawn of modernity. He said the Reformation was a challenge and a sign of contradiction to modernity. I think Nietzsche was closer to the truth than Hegel uh, or Harnock. He said, if Luther had have been burned alive at the stake, as Jan Hus was at the Council of Constance, the Enlightenment would perhaps have dawned somewhat earlier than it did and with more beautiful luster than we can now conceive. Luther was the first modern man. I don't believe it. Uh, three, Luther and the Reformation was a German event. Now, like all of these myths I'm running through, there's some truth to all of them, and there's some truth to this one. Luther was a German through and through. He was not a European. The founder of the European community, as we call it now, was Erasmus. It was Erasmus who first had the idea, we ought to be able to go from one end of Europe to the other, from England to Poland, without any passports, 
without any visas. We ought to have open borders everywhere. That was Erasmus' idea. And there's one overwhelming European culture that Erasmus spent his life trying to reinvigorate. That's what his project was much about. He was the first European, not Martin Luther. Luther was a German through and through. And we know that because he unabashedly appealed to German patriotism in his early writings. And, of course, his impact on the German language through his translation of the Bible into German, which had, I would say, a more profound impact on the German language and culture than the King James Version has had on our own English language and culture. Uh, and so there's some truth to this, that the Reformation was a German event, but from the beginning it was not the whole truth because there were other Reformations. There was a French Reformation. There was a Swiss Reformation. Uh, there was an English Reformation, a Dutch Reformation, and even a Polish Reformation. And from the beginning, the Reformation was a global event. I'm going to underscore this point just a little bit because in the year and in the very month in which Luther stood before the Emperor Charles V at the Diet of Worms and said, here I stand, so help me God, I can do it. In that very month, April of 1521, on the other side of the globe, a man named Ferdinand Magellan was planting the flag in the Philippine Islands. Columbus, we know what he did in the West. Now, it's true that these were Catholics. And it is also true that it, it was the Catholic Reformation, more than the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, that had the idea of carrying this message, the Bible, the message about Jesus, to the far corners of the world. So St. Francis Xavier went to China, he went to Japan in the 16th century. It's remarkable. But... This was also a part of the Protestant vision from the beginning. We often ignore that and downplay it. We shouldn't. In the year 1555, that's 60-something years before the pilgrims came to Plymouth, the city of Geneva, under the impetus and leadership of Admiral Coligny, a great Protestant noble leader in France, carried a mission to plant a church in Brazil, near the mouth of the Amazon River. It didn't last. But that vision that the gospel isn't just for Europe, it's not just for us, it's for the world. This was a part of the Protestant idea from the beginning. It took a couple of centuries for it to really unfold with a figure like William Carey, the Baptist missionary, shoemaker, pastor, who carried the gospel to India. And, and what, was, what did he think he was doing? Well, he thought he was following in the footsteps of Luther and the Reformers. He, and, and in some ways he did. What did he do? He translated the Bible into Bengali and then the many, many languages of India and even Chinese. One of the first Chinese translations of the Bible come from care. He founded schools. Schools. How can you give people the Bible if they can't read? So literacy was important. And schools not just for boys but for girls which also Luther had done in Germany in the 16th century. So uh, I want to come now to the constructive. You think I'm just a demolition crew today, but I'm not. I want to talk about, you can call these four defining motifs if you want to. This is what the reformers thought they were about. When they thought about the work they were doing, this is how they explained it. This is how they understood it. You might not agree with them. You might want to challenge them. I might too on some of this. 
But here are four very important ways in which they understood the Reformation. Number one, the Reformation as a divine initiative. The Reformation as a divine initiative. I was giving a lecture in another city not long ago, and somebody said, are you a providentialist historian? Well, I'm a chastened providentialist because I do think it's dangerous when we begin to say, well, this was God's work, and God did that, and God did this, and before you know it, you know, God does everything. Well, I think we have to be chastened in our providentialism, but as a Christian, I think we all have to say that God has not left the world alone since Jesus ascended into heaven. And he has been guiding the church through dark days and good days, through ups and downs. There is a providential guiding hand in the history of God's people. And the reformers thought that was true in the events that were unfolding all around them, that God was the one who was active in it. That's not how we see the reformers. We see, by and large, the reformers as revolutionaries. And they were revolutionaries in the original scientific sense of the word revolution. You know when the word revolution was coined, when it became a part of our vocabulary? It was 1543, three years before Luther died, in a book published by a Polish astronomer and mathematician named Nikolai Copernicus, who gave us that title, Revolution, in his book, De Revolutionibus Obrium Celestium, the revolution of the heavenly orbs. But a revolution, in Copernicus' sense, was the return of an object in space to its original point of departure. And in that scientific Copernican sense, yes, the revolution, the Reformation was a revolution. It, they wanted to return. They wanted, it was a back-to-the-future movement. They wanted to go back to what they felt had been lost and obscured in the medieval Catholic Church. And so, ad fontes, back to the sources, back to the Bible, back to the early church, back to St. Augustine. These were the great themes of the... Refer and so they, they didn't see themselves as we see them, great agents of political social revolution like uh, Robespierre in the French Revolution or uh, Lenin in the Russian Revolution or Che Guevara. No, they didn't see themselves that way. They thought they were calling the church back to its original impetus found in the apostles, found in the scriptures, and found to a great extent in the early church, but not in the late medieval church. And so uh, Luther famously said, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. What he means by that is he translated the Bible. Wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip and my Amsdorf, which proves Luther was not a Southern Baptist. <laughs> while he was taking a nap or having a drink, the word, capital W, so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Well, you could say that's, that's just false humility. That's just, you know, propaganda. I think Luther felt this at the deepest level of his soul, that God, the Reformation was a divine initiative, and God had something to do with it. He wrote to his mentor, his father in God, Johann von Staupitz in 1519, God has seized me and is driving me and leading me on. I am not the one in control. 
I want to be at peace, but I'm snatched up and placed in the middle of an uprising. That was Luther. Let me go to the second motif, the Reformation as spiritual struggle. At the heart of Reformation spirituality and theology is the experience of the Christian life as conflict, contention, trial, testing, assault. Uh, Luther had a word for this, a big long word in German that's almost impossible to translate into English. The word is anfechtungen, and we usually translate it temptation, tentatio in Latin, but that's too weak, too anemic a translation for that word, anfechtungen, because right in the middle of that word, anfechtungen, is another German word, fechter. A fechter is a fencer. Maybe some of you practice fencing. I've never fenced, but I know people who do. These, they have put on, on, on some kind of outfit, and they get swords, and they, they try to jab one another. It looks pretty atrocious. Well, that's what anfechtungen is. It's somebody coming at you with a fencing sword, trying to destroy you, trying to kill you. A fechter is a fencer. A fechtboden in German is a fencing room. That's where this takes place. So the anfechtungen connotes spiritual attack, bouts of dread, despair, anxiety, conflicts within and without, a churning that rages both within the soul of every believer and in the great apocalyptic struggle between God and Satan. Now, that's another thing. Uh, if Luther is your modern man, you have a little trouble with Luther and the devil because he really believed there was an active, devouring devil. 1 Peter 5.8 says, The devil, your adversary, walks about, creeps about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Well... The devil was a real part of Luther's life and Luther's spirituality. When you visit the Vartborg Castle today, you can see the room where Luther translated the Bible and on the wall, sort of faded now, there's some dark stain from the ink, the inkwell, the ink pot that Luther is said to have thrown at the devil in frustration in the Vartborg. I have a different theory. I believe that Luther was so aggressive in his comeback to the devil's taunts that the devil just couldn't take it anymore, and it was he who took the ink pot and threw it at Luther. That's just my interpretation. It doesn't cost you anymore. Um, but the devil was a real thing, and, and I'm fechtungen, this fighting, this conflict. I was speaking in another place on the Reformation, and I make, made this point, and one of the very learned scholars, professors, stood up and said, Oh, Luther, you're talking about dark. He's always in conflict. Always dealing with battles. Where's the joy? Where's the comfort? Where's the sweet smiles of peace? And, you know, I thought I was talking to Robert Schuller for a minute. Uh, Dr. Schuller actually did write a book on the Reformation, the New Reformation, before he died, in which he presents Luther as kind of the great prophet of self-esteem. But something's missing. Now, I don't deny the comfort and the joy, and it's there in Luther. You know where you find it? with his children, with his family, with the lute singing the great hymns of the faith. That's where you get that kind of Luther. And it's there, and we shouldn't leave it out. But if that's all you've got, if that's your leading Luther image, you're missing something really crucial. You're missing the fact that the Christian life is a spiritual battle. 
And unless you take on board something that Luther understood, that we are in a struggle, there are Anfechtungen, uh, your, your faith is going to end up being pretty, pretty sentimental and pretty syrupy, and it won't get you through the night. It won't get you through the next crisis. So the Reformation as spiritual struggle. Now, I've got to hurry and make these two last points. Number three, the Reformation as ecclesial event, as a churchly event. Why did the Reformation happen when it did? Well, a number of factors came together in the early 16th century to create a perfect storm. For one thing, the Fifth Lateran Council had just closed. It it concluded in 1517, the year Luther posted his 95 Theses. This was a general council of the church, and it was a chance for the church to address some of the problems that many people recognized were there. Nothing happened. It was the last opportunity to do that before the Council of Trent. But... um, It was the perfect storm because there were a lot of things happening in the political world, in the learning scholarly world, Erasmus Greek New Testament, in in the geopolitical world, the fall of Constantinople and the incursion of the Ottoman Turks, the forces of Islam. All of that was brewing. It was the perfect storm. In many ways, what Luther said had been said before by many other people. He was not the first one to come up with the idea of justification by faith alone. He was not even the first one to say we ought to appeal to the Scriptures alone as the normative rule of faith and practice. Others had said that. And so it was the fact that at this moment, Luther was called to call the church back to its fundamental beliefs and its fundamental practices. And so I think we ought to see the Reformation as a churchly event. Uh, He he came up with a doctrine that we Baptists especially love to tout. It's almost a a Baptist badge of identity. I mean, we share it with Anglicans and Presbyterians too, but it's really a Baptist view, we say. It's the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. But we, we have a way of talking about that, we Baptists, as the priesthood of the believer, one single lonely Isolated, individual, me and God, me and Jesus, we got a good thing going, me and him, we got it all worked out. That's a distortion of what the priesthood of all believers, it's plural, is about. It means that, not I'm my own priest, I don't need any priest, that's not what it meant. It meant that in the community of faith, God has so tempered his body together that we are to be priests unto one another. And we're to care for one another. Pray for one another. When somebody stumbles and falls, we reach out a hand and we lift them back. We don't stomp them into the ground. That's the priesthood of all believers. It's not this religious individualism, but rather it's opposite. The reality of the church as a congregation, as a community, as a covenanted company of God's people. Now finally, what did the reformers think they were about? Well, I think they thought they were about these things I have mentioned and one more. They thought the Reformation was a movement with a long view of history. Now, it's true. I've already mentioned Luther's belief in the devil. You can't get away from that. The devil shows up on almost every page of the 121 folio volumes in the Weimar Ausgabe. He's there. 
And Luther also was an apocalyptic thinker. He believed that he was living at the very edge of time. He thought the world was rushing toward its final denouement, its conclusion. And he was lured, he was drawn into speculating about where he fit in that scheme of things. In 1531, he actually... uh, drew up a little eschatological timetable to see how much longer he thought the world would go on before Christ returned. But he backed away from that because when one of his disciples, a man named Michael Stiefel, did his own calculations and predicted that Christ would come back on October the 19th, 1533, at 8 o'clock in the morning. That was too much. Maybe 7.30, not 8 o'clock. How do you know that? How do you? And so Luther said, we shouldn't take these speculations, even mine, too seriously. No one knows the day or the hour. But we do know that time is moving forward. It's not standing still. It's certainly not going backward. There will be a conclusion to it. And we're living, Luther said, at the very edge of time. The last day is at hand. And there are many signs, he thought. Yes, the coming of the forces of Islam was one, the... All the revolutions and the disturbances uh, are another. And this is bringing us one day, one step closer to the final end of time. Now, what does it do for your spirituality? What does it do for your theology if you believe that you don't have that much time left? You're living at the very edge of time. Well, it might, it might put some urgency in it. It might make you um, realize that This is really an important thing we're involved in, this thing called life. Because it doesn't go on forever for us or for the world itself. As he grew older, as Luther grew older, he grew crankier. I hope that's not true of me as I grow older. I I hope I'm not getting crankier, but maybe I am. But Luther certainly was. He grew more and more ridden with disease and sickness and pain. Uh, He lived in a world before anesthesia, before all the drugs that we have today to help us get through the pain. And this impacted him deeply. And he came to see the world as he grew older. You see this in his later writings. As he grew older, he came to see himself and the world as a mirror image of himself. An old, gray-haired man tottering along, headed to his grave. He was disappointed. He was disappointed because he initially had hoped and thought, once the Bible is translated, once the gospel is preached, once people hear the glorious message of Reformation faith, justification by faith alone, all of that, then they will... Respond, they will repent, they will believe there will be a genuine reformation of the church. It didn't happen. Reformation split in two, we know that. Uh, There were battles, literal and spiritual, to be fought. And in many ways, when Luther ended his life in 1546, when he died... He could see everything he had worked for just about crumbling all around him. And this, I think, made him sadder and made him crankier, yes. But he never, ever gave up his fundamental 
belief that he expressed in that quotation about the word did it all. I did nothing, the word did it all. And he continued to recite his favorite Old Testament verse. It was Isaiah 55, 11. You know what Isaiah 55, 11 says? Let me read it to you in the New Revised uh, Version of the Bible. Isaiah 55 and verse 11 I'll go back to verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater. As this all happens in nature, so, Isaiah says, shall my word, my word, God's word, go out from my mouth. This is God speaking in the mouth of Isaiah. So shall my word go out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty. King James Version says void. It won't come back empty. Void. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That was Luther's favorite verse in the Old Testament and he quotes it over and over again, especially as he nears the end of his life. The word of God will accomplish what it has been sent to do. We can trust that because we trust the one who sends it. We trust the God of the Reformation. If the world should come to an end tomorrow, Luther said, I will still plant a little apple tree today. Well, he didn't really say that. We, many people attribute it to him. But we actually think it goes back to a rabbi in the Middle Ages. It's part of the Talmudic tradition of Jewish wisdom. If the world should come to an end tomorrow, I will still plant a little apple tree today. And even though Luther may not have said those exact words, I think they capture something of his heart and his spirit, something of the hopefulness with which he lived, despite the ragings of the evil one, and the apocalyptic doom that he saw everywhere. Despite this, he lived with a degree of hopefulness. Not in himself and not even in the structures of the church and the reformation that he had tried to reform. But hopefulness in the God who had given that word, the God who had sent his son Jesus Christ. He lived in that hopefulness and confidence in the faith. He lived by this faith and he died in this faith. And so can we. Now, I think we have time maybe for one question, do we? Here's a question. Dean George, would you address very briefly, if you could, the influence of John Wycliffe and John Huss as translators of the Bible on the Reformation? Yes, uh, that's two more lectures, but I'll do it quickly. John, John Wycliffe was a professor at Oxford. He died in the 14th century. He challenged a lot of doctrines of the church, transubstantiation, papal authority, and he was condemned as a heretic after he died, posthumously. If I'm ever condemned as a heretic, that's how I want it. Yeah. <laughs> but he inspired a number of his followers to begin to translate the Bible into English, the Lollards. And we have some of those Bibles. We have one in our special collections department at, at Beeson, Sanford, this this Bible that comes from John Wycliffe. It had a great influence, especially in England. That's where he was, in the English Reformation. John Hus was the reformer of Bohemia. 
he read Wycliffe, and he too was inspired in the same direction. So both of these figures, Wycliffe and Huss, we sometimes call forerunners of the Reformation. Uh, not exactly the same, that's a controversial title, forerunner, but they did get some of the insights that Luther later picked up on and others and carried forward. And it reminds us that the Reformation did not happen in a vacuum. It did not begin with Martin Luther and Calvin. It began with these figures, Wycliffe, Huss, Savonarola down in Florence, many others who were calling for reform and doing the work, especially of giving the Bible in the language of the people. Now, the big difference in the Bible translation between Wycliffe and Luther was that Wycliffe only had the Latin Vulgate to use as the base for his translation. They didn't have the Greek New Testament. That was new in the time of the Reformation, largely because of Erasmus. And so Luther was able to take Erasmus' Greek New Testament and use it as the basis of his translation of the New Testament into German in 1522. William Tyndale did exactly the same thing with that Greek New Testament before him when he gave us the first ever English New Testament translated from the Greek, published in 1526. So these were two great, I would say, forerunners of the Reformation. Okay, quick question. Um, how would you foresee, if the printing press had not been recently perfected, invented the movable type, would, would the Reformation have proceeded on a slower basis or in a different way? without the availability of, of printed Bibles in the various languages for the good, people good, to read? Yes, good question. And I think the answer is yes. It would not have been the same pace of reform because Luther becomes the first best-selling author in the world and his works are spread all over Europe and this gives enormous energy, uh, impetus to the Reformation. I don't want to go so far as to say it would never have happened at all, but the printing press, as Elizabeth Eisenstein said in her great book, was an agent of religious change. And Protestantism was the first mass movement affected by the printing press. Thank you, Dr. George. Dr. George, thanks so much. God bless you. I do want you to know they only clap for guests. They never clap for men. <laughs> Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thank you. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.